0: Hey friends, welcome back to The Journal Feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to get spoon-fed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine. Here, we try to make keeping up on the literature as easy as possible by spoon-feeding you the latest research straight through your earbuds. So, let's take a quick look at everything that we covered from this week. First, epi or norepi, which is better for out of hospital cardiac arrest, which I'm just gonna call OCA now because, well, Ken Millen keeps calling it OCA, so I feel like I have license to do that too. Second, thrombectomy for that pesky basilar artery. Third, intranasal fentanyl for children, and not just a little, is it safe? Fourth, first you snake the drain, then you wash it out. Post-thrombectomy, TPA for ischemic strokes. And lastly, adding a little namaste to stress testing. Big news, everybody. The Journal Feed, like many projects that you've probably been involved with in the past, well, we think what we do is pretty cool. And so we'd like to keep doing that for a while. Poor Clay Smith, who started the Journal Feed, puts in an insane amount of work and has been doing so for years. What we'd like is for Journal Feed to be sustainable. And part of making that happen is going to be a move towards a paid subscription model, which means that for full access, we're going to start charging a small fee. If you'd like to continue to get full access to the Journal Feed blog and podcast, then you can become a member. All the details for that are at journalfeed.org. So if you're hearing this, then you're not a full Journal Feed member subscriber and in a few weeks, this podcast feed is only going to be covering some of the articles from the past weeks. Don't worry, I'm always gonna pick my favorites though. Now, we don't want money to be a barrier for patient care, so we will offer resident and medical student discounts. And if that's still too much, then get in touch and we'll help you out. Now then, back to our usual scheduled programming. This is the audio version of the Past Week Summaries, which this week were brought to you by the humble John Kerducky, Megan Breed, Rebecca Breed, and Clay Smith. Now, the first article was titled Epinephrine versus Norepinephrine in Cardiac Arrest Patients with Post-Resuscitation Shock, out of the Journal of Intensive Care Medicine. All that separates epinephrine from norepinephrine is three letters, that's not actually true, but that doesn't mean that these two are quite the same. There hasn't actually been many studies that compare the two drugs directly. Probably not a lot of incentive to do so, but that just doesn't stop some people. And these people looked at a subgroup of patients with hypotension. That is, they looked at patients who were post ROSC after OCA. A lot of acronyms. Not an uncommon population to see and need pressers for, so this could indeed inform your practice. This was an observational trial out of France that recruited 766 patients. About 40% of them got epinephrine, and the remainder received norepinephrine for resuscitation after an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. After doing what feels like standard controlling for patient-specific factors and performing multivariate logistic regression, they found that epinephrine had worse outcomes than norepinephrine. All-cause mortality had an odds ratio of 2.6, And cardiovascular mortality had an even worse time, with an adjusted odds ratio of 5.5. Given those numbers, it's not surprising that the more patient-centered outcome of good neurological survival was also worse with an epinephrine, having an adjusted odds ratio of 3 for unfavorable outcomes. What's not controlled in this study, though, is why the physicians chose the presser that they did. Control as much as you like and it's never going to make the trial randomized. If you look closely, then you see that the epinephrine patients look sicker, they have more unshockable rhythms, longer time to ROSC, higher lactates. There could be bias there. Often epinephrine is chosen because we want to add some inotropic effect. But maybe that thought is doing more harm than good. If you look at the literature at large, you see that epinephrine shows more signs of being pro-arrhythmogenic. It increases oxygen demand and results in recurrent cardiac arrest in some cases. As a solution to this problem, if you want to add inotropic support but you still want to use norepinephrine, you can add dibutamine, and this has been shown to be as effective as epinephrine from a hemodynamic standpoint but with fewer adverse effects. Nothing replaces high quality data though, so we'd like to have more of that in the future. None of this sounds crazy to me though. I know that we want the heart to work harder sometimes, but if it's not working harder, there might be a good reason for it as well. Recall that we actually give beta blockers to patients with non-acute heart failure, and that improves mortality. So maybe in the more acute phase, there's kind of the same logic there too. In a spoonful, this observational trial confirms suspicions that epinephrine is inferior to norepinephrine, at least in the setting of post rosc hypertension after OCA. Out of hospital cardiac arrest. It's still weird to me. Second article. Association between endovascular therapy time to treatment and outcomes in patients with basilar artery occlusion out of the Journal of Circulation. Now, as favor for TPA wanes, we better get some good thrombectomy data up and going. Unfortunately, every artery has its own little perks and pitfalls, so let's start off with the basilar artery. These are no joke strokes too. They only account for about 5% of all strokes, but they have really high morbidity and mortality. So far endovascular therapy for these occlusions hasn't been well studied, and the two trials we do have on the subject, the BEST and BASICS trials, were both inconclusive for benefit compared with just medical therapy. This trial is a registry trial of prospectively collected data on 3,000 patients with basilar artery occlusion and treated with endovascular therapy within 24 hours of onset. On top of that, 40% of these patients were treated within 6 hours. Like I said, these are bad strokes. 28% of these patients died, and only 23% were discharged home from the hospital. If you want better outcomes, then I would recommend endovascular therapy, at least based on this trial, especially if it can be done within 6 hours. If you can do that, then there was an association with less hospital mortality, an adjusted odds ratio of 0.84, less disability, ambulatory at discharge, adjusted odds ratio of 1.21, and higher odds of discharge home, adjusted odds ratio of 1.35, all of which were significant differences. Results were also much better across the board if the endovascular treatment was done within the first six hours. Not too shabby. That's the kind of study that I like to see. I'd rather that than be thrombolized, but we'll get to that in a minute, don't you worry. In a spoonful, here we have a positive observational trial for endovascular therapy to treat basilar artery occlusion, with significantly better results if it was done within the first six hours since symptom onset rather than just within the first 24. Now the third article, titled, The Safety of High-Dose Intranasal Fentanyl in the Pediatric Emergency Department at a Pediatric Emergency Care. Pain control in children can be something of an ordeal, especially if you need to get an IV first. A kid in pain is not necessarily going to be very cooperative when it comes to submitting to more pain by way of a needle stick. Having a quick fix, like a decent dose of intranasal fentanyl, would be pretty great, and it could even provide some light sedation. The first question, of course, is, is it safe? Nothing like a little chart review to answer your questions, though. These authors looked at seven years of records of when children received more than 100 micrograms of intranasal fentanyl and found more than 3,200 cases. The average age was almost 14 years old, and the mean initial dose was 162 micrograms. The highest initial dose being given was 265 micrograms that averaged out to about 2.6 micrograms per kg. Of these patients, only three of them had adverse events. Most of the adverse events were all with incorrect dosing routes. And it's true, IV and IN, they look pretty similar on paper. Even then though, only one patient who received the IV dose by accident needed supplemental oxygen and they did not need invasive support. I think it's safe to assume that even though we're relying on retrospective data here and what was reported, I don't think anybody could have covered up any intubations. These authors didn't have data on how effective the pain control doses were, but it's worth noting that the recommended effective dose for intranatal cell administration tops out at 1 milliliter, and giving up to 200 micrograms of fentanyl would require 4 milliliters, so it's hard to say that this is really going to give you better pain control. They also looked at on the side was when fentanyl was given with midazolam, which had a median initial dose of 10 milligrams, and found there was no adverse events with this combination. So, from this study, you really couldn't promise that the pain control was necessarily going to be better at higher doses, but it seemed to be safe. In a spoonful, higher doses of intranasal fentanyl, as much as 2 to 5 micrograms per kg to a maximum of 200 micrograms, were safe in this retrospective study. There were no episodes of apnea, hypotension, or respiratory failure that were recorded. And then we have the fourth article titled, Effect of Intraarterial Alteplase versus Placebo Following Successful Thrombectomy on Functional Outcomes in Patients with Large Vessel Occlusion Acute Ischemic Stroke, The Choice Randomized Clinical Trial, published out of the JAMA. As mentioned, thrombolysis has been losing some favor, particularly in recent years. It's still standard of care in many places, and I say that very hesitantly, standard of care, because Asep's stance on it isn't that it ought to be quote-unquote standard of care necessarily, more like a shared decision. Anyways, part of what's gotten us this far with it is that it makes so much sense. Not to mention that it does actually work pretty well for coronary occlusions. So maybe we just need to find the right patients, or the right time. I don't know. In the ideal world, we could thrombectomy everything. I kind of like the idea of that. Just go in there and take it out. As things stand, though, only about 27% of patients who undergo thrombectomy for ischemic strokes with large vessel occlusions are disability-free at three months. Perhaps they need a little extra help with some thrombolysis on top of the clot retrieval. This is the CHOICE RCT, a three-year randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial done in Spain. They hypothesized that following up successful thrombectomy with thrombolysis using alteplase at a dose of 0.225 mg per kg would give a higher chance of excellent neurological outcomes at 90 days. They had 1,800 patients who underwent thrombectomy, but in the end only 121 were actually randomized. The primary outcome was a score of 0 or 1 on the modified Rankin scale at 90 days. That's a great outcome, by the way. A score of 0 is no symptoms at all, and a score of 1 is like annoying symptoms but no disability. In the group who received alteplase, 59% met the primary outcome at 90 days. In the group that received placebo, it was only 40%. That's an 18% adjusted risk difference which is pretty significant, and was statistically significant as well. I know that the difference between 40 and 59 is 19%, but I always round the numbers, so really the adjusted risk difference is 18, don't give me trouble for it. Anyways, unfortunately there was no significant difference in mortality, and there were actually more intracranial bleeds in the placebo group and none in the alteplase group. The study's other outcomes of improved angiographic findings and several other methods of stroke assessment were not significant. The major limitation of this trial was a smaller-than-anticipated sample size. And the trial was even stopped early because they couldn't get their hands on enough placebo. Thank you very much, COVID pandemic. Kudos to the authors, though, for being very conservative in their conclusions. They themselves, despite looking to have a very positive and promising trial, call this preliminary data, which requires replication. In a spoonful, the CHOICE RCT shows preliminary data that suggests that thrombolysis after successful thrombectomy may increase the proportion of patients with full or near full recovery by as much as almost 20%. And then the last article, the fifth article titled, Higher Intensity of 72-Hour Non-Invasive Cardiac Test Referral Does Not Improve Short-Term Outcomes Among Emergency Department Patients with Chest Pain Under the Journal of Academic Emergency Medicine. Non-invasive cardiac testing, i.e. stress testing, used to be, I mean, really a staple of cardiology. The AHA actually recommended that chest pain patients discharged from the emergency department get non-invasive testing within 72 hours. Until just recently, that is. This is yet another case of something that feels so right, but is not necessarily right. But if you're still on the fence about stress testing, well, let's have one more study to dissuade you. This was a retrospective review of Kaiser Permanente health system data for chest pain patients in whom MI was ruled out in the emergency department. Different providers had different intensities for getting their referrals for stress testing, and this created kind of a natural experiment. They found that the most intense referral processes for stress testing were associated with higher rates of major adverse cardiac events at 60 days. And this really makes me cringe. The increase in the rate of major adverse cardiac events wasn't being driven by MIs, cardiac arrests, deaths, or anything like that. But instead it was being driven by coronary revascularization procedures. If you stratified the patients by heart score, then the worst affected were those with intermediate risk scores. In a spoonful, cool your jets on stress testing. This retrospective study showed an increased rate of major adverse cardiac events at 60 days in those discharged with intense follow-up schedules, which was mainly driven by the procedures that resulted from this testing. Alright guys, that's all five, let's do a quick wrap-up. What did we learn today? From the first article in your next OCA patient who's post-ROSC but still hypotensive, perhaps resist the urge to make the heart work harder and reach for norepinephrine instead of epinephrine as a presser. Second, get your wires ready. Endovascular therapy for basal artery occlusion seems like a good idea. Best do it within six hours for even better results. Third, sniff, sniff goes the fentanyl, and don't be stingy. There were no adverse events with intranasal doses of fentanyl up to 200 micrograms in children seen in this study. Fourth, in patients who have undergone successful thrombectomy, for acute ischemic stroke with large vessel occlusion, they may benefit from the addition of thrombolysis, that is, after the thrombectomy. This trial showed higher rates of excellent neurological outcomes. And from the fifth article, intense non-invasive cardiac testing after an emergency department for chest pain might do more harm than good. Links to all the articles summarized can be found at journalfeed.org. If you'd like to continue to get the full week summaries by podcast, as well as everything else that the Journal Feed offers, consider becoming a member. All the details for that are at our website. Our goal here is to provide better patient care through spoon feeding. And so we're trying to help you keep up with the latest research, one spoonful at a time. Thank you.